0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Curious Mind Podcast. My name is Gabriel Ellis, I'm a psychotherapist and Buddhist scholar, and in this podcast I take deep dives into complex psychological topics that affect our well-being in general. In the fourth episode of the podcast, I introduced a basic framework for the mind. The imaginary, the symbolic, and the real. And today I would like to discuss a bit more the third element, the real, and combine it with what I spoke already about, uh, about Buddhism and meditation. If I can summarize very briefly the imaginary, I would call it an immature distortion. It's when I identify myself with my body and with the looks of my body or with a car or with money. Now, these kinds of things, they are necessary steps for children to develop, especially the identification with the body. But if we continue to be occupied with looks or with the stuff that we have or with money, basically with images, with fantasies, then this is what we call superficial because grown-ups know that good looks or money alone don't make us happy. A more mature distortion is the symbolic. It's when I use communication, relationships, and the possibilities of culture and society to be happy. This is more advanced and more resilient than just the looks and objects. But if I call even this a distortion, isn't there anything more solid, something really reliable that I can build on? and that guarantees my satisfaction in life? This is where the real comes in, or more practically, the practice of meditation. Now, if I exclude all images, which is the imaginary, and all concepts, which is the symbolic, then what is left? What is the supposed reality that I can reach? In the end, there seem to be two choices, I believe. The reality of science and the reality of how the mind works. It is no secret, I believe, that the reality of science is usually not making us really satisfied, at least not in a sustainable way. Just because we find out that we can build bridges, develop flying cars and split atoms, doesn't make us really happy. We can identify with these things on an imaginary level, but the resulting satisfaction dissipates just as with any other objects or concepts. The other choice is to understand the reality of how the mind works, and here, because the mind understands something about itself, this is more sustainable. I don't turn it into a concept. To give you an example, normal people all have their small discomforts, anxieties and trigger points. Let's take, for example, the idea that foreigners endanger my way of life. We know that to emphasize this idea has been traditionally a very simple way for politicians to create anxiety, resentment and thus to get elected. Then, one day, hopefully, I find out how politicians have been manipulated me with this trigger topic, and I decide not to be manipulated anymore. As a consequence, instead of listening to my fear, I rather ask myself, what about it is true and what is not? And eventually I come to understand that some points are valid, some are complete nonsense, and some I don't really know yet what to think about. What is ultimately the releasing element here is that I become independent, that I understood that just following my fear was not the best choice, because, as a consequence, I was manipulated by people who know how to manipulate emotions. So essentially, I understood something about the mind, namely, Certain ideas lead to emotions, and emotions can lead me to do stupid things that are not good for me. And I learned to doubt the automatism, to doubt that emotions are automatically and necessarily true. What is of course essential here is that I make this a living reality. I don't reduce it to a concept, put it in a box in the attic, or post it on Facebook and let it rot there. Making it a reality means that I have to apply it again and again. This is just one very small example for an understanding of the mind that leads to a more sustainable satisfaction and independence. And these are the kinds of insights that can come up in meditation, either directly in the meditation session or later on when I reflect on my experiences. Let me go to a much more abstract example, one where Buddhist teachings and natural sciences are actually in agreement. The Buddhist statement is, all experience is impermanent. And I think it's fair to say that neither in physics we find a truly static object, nor in neuroscience. So as a concept, this is acceptable. But how are we to implement it as a reality? Is there a way of living where we can be truly independent from tragedy, illness, or even a lottery win? Let me put aside the question of such a state as desirable at all. I'm pretty sure that most people would not like to give up their normal way of functioning. Still, I think it's clear that someone who keeps in mind that everything is impermanent would live a very peaceful life, at least. And I think that there are applications for everyday normal life. For example, when good things happen, to know that they will not stay on their own, I have to make them continue. For example, when I win money in a lottery or gain the trust of my superior and get a promotion or when I get to know someone that I fall in love with. None of these good things will stay positively just on their own. Quite on the contrary, I can be absolutely certain that they will change. And this exactly puts me in the position of responsibility, not just to be dumb and waste the good until it's gone, but to ask myself what I can do to prolong and to extend it. For example, to put some of the wins of the lottery money aside. Or to do my new job well. Or to become a really good communicator and partner in the relationship. And the same is true in cases of tragedy. The bad feelings, the mourning, and the guilt will pass if I don't hold on to them. This is just the nature of experiences. The worst thing that I can do is to prevent these bad feelings to go away. For example, by reminding myself daily how bad I should feel, how miserable I am, how unfairly I was treated, and so on. If I leave the thoughts and feelings alone, they must go away. It's just in their nature. And by seeing this, I am again put into the responsible position, dive into my bad feelings and to indulge in them, but to ask myself what I can do to move on and turn my life to a positive direction. If I have well implemented this understanding of how the mind works, I actually don't have to do a lot of psychological work or apply strange techniques all the time, because ultimately those techniques are concepts and therefore belong to the realm of the symbolic. They're not bad, but they're also not absolutely reliable. The effect will go away. If I just implement techniques, or I'm looking for techniques in books and videos, and uh, from coaches and so on it might help in the beginning and then like every other concept that works on the mind the effect will go away what is more reliable is to keep in mind the reality of the mind that if i don't artificially prolong negative states that they are bound to change and go away and again This is something that can be directly experienced in meditation. It doesn't have to be. I can experience it also on my own without a formal practice. But what I do in meditation is just that I create a very quiet environment where I'm able to observe these things and to process them and I'm not overly distracted by other sounds and thoughts and things that I have on my mind. And then, when I do this, it is not just a concept or just something that I hear in a podcast and read in a fancy book, but it becomes an observation that I make for myself. And then it has the chance to become a reality. And this reality belongs to the third aspect of the mind, the real. So... I hope that I could make clear a little bit at least what this aspect of the real is. It's not an image, it's not an ideal, and it's not a concept. It's about a mind that realizes something about itself, and it's thus more grounded in reality, not in a fantasy. But I also have to admit that this was a quite simple discussion of the real. There is much more complexity to it. Certainly, if you read into Lacan, um, that I recommended in podcasts, episode number four. And there is much more to discover, which truly makes an impact on daily life and one's satisfaction. But I guess to discover is also part of the journey, as they say. Let me finish today with a Chinese tale that fits the topic, I believe and that I read in a book by Alan Watts. The tale goes like this. One day, the only horse of a farmer ran away, and all the neighbors gathered in the evening and said, that's too bad. The farmers just said, maybe. Next day, the horse came back and brought with it seven other wild horses. Wow, everyone said, aren't you lucky? The farmer just said, maybe. Some days later, his only son grappled with one of these wild horses and tried to tame it. And he got thrown off and broke his leg, damaging it permanently. And all the neighbors said, oh, that's too bad that your only son broke his leg so badly. What will become of him? And so on. The farmer said, we'll see, maybe. After a few months, the conscription officers came around, gathering young men for the army. And they rejected his son because of his damaged leg. And again the neighbors came around and said, Isn't that great? Your son won't get killed in the war. And the farmer said, Maybe. That's it for today. Thanks everyone for listening. Feel free to leave a comment. And if you enjoyed it, tune in to another episode on this channel. Below you can also find a link to my website elliscounseling.com and my Facebook page Ellis Counseling and Psychotherapy, where you can contact me for online therapy or counseling sessions.